Hi, everyone, and welcome to Time Extend. We're back this week with another podcast. You're listening to Adam Ismail, and I'm here today, as always, with... Brendan Norrison, and today we'll be running you through the latest news topics in the world of racing games and discuss a featured topic at the end. Right, and we'll just get straight into it because uh, last week was a pretty eventful one. First off, we got the GT Sport 1.15 update, which came with the standard gamut of new vehicles, uh, new GT League events, a new track in the form of Tsukuba, and uh, you know various new scapes environments and museum entries, and the VR time trial mode. So we'll just uh, quickly go through the cars. Uh, this week, you got an Aston Martin DB11, the BMW M3 Sport Evolution, the E30 M3, which is huge. Uh, people have really been clamoring for that for a very long time. The Eckert's Rod and Custom Mach 40, this kind of souped-up mid-engine Mustang. Four GT40 Mark One, two Red Bull X2014s, a junior and the standard model. The Honda Raybrick Concept GT, a Super GT GT500 car, and you also got the Tom's RCF and uh, the Motul Autech GTR. Those are your three Super GT cars. Lexus RCF GT3, Mazda RX-7, uh, GTX, a Savannah, and the GTR Nismo, and the R33 Skyline. So that's a pretty good assortment of cars there. And I mean, the M3, right? That, that's a huge deal. Definitely. Um, this, is, this has been one of the most requested cars for so long. And even seeing it when it was confirmed, it was hard to believe because what are we going to complain about now? <laughs> that was the de facto <laughs> car to put exactly. digital up about and here we are we got the supra we got the premium supra and we got the m3 so as far as i can tell that's it um they can just retire right now yeah that's it gt sport is done (laughs) (laughs) yeah well last night uh you and i brendan we were playing uh gt sport online and we were doing some races with the m3 and i was really surprised to find out how tail happy it was it really is the way i describe is it's kind of like a baby viper and it's only got like 240 odd horsepower or something like that it was a really fun fun drive though it really is and it's i said this last night when we were driving it this highlights just how far the gran turismo physics engine has come because it wouldn't have been too long ago that car might have felt a bit sterile but it's anything but in gt sport and it is such a, a, a dream to drive purely because of how visceral it is when you're going round corners you feel every bump and like you say that it's it's so viper like it's almost scary yeah, I think the the suspension modeling really was um, one of the bright few bright spots of GT6. They really made an effort to make the road cars feel more bouncy and, and spongy than I guess the race cars do. And GT Sport just, you know, takes that and dials up to 11 and really makes you feel the difference. And those cars are more forgiving, you know, some of those uh, lower power road cars. But you can still get sideways when you want to, and, and that's, I think just kind of what it's uh what's all about when it comes to having a fun a fun little drive in a in a relatively low power sports car so had a lot of fun with that and uh yeah as i said before sukuba is our new track which i you know at first i was really happy about it because like it'd been a while since i really you know enjoyed sukuba especially in like a modern racing game um in this generation but once I do a couple laps of that track, you know, once I'm there for like a half hour, kind of, kind of over it. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's one of these tracks that I'm glad has been put in GT Sport because we've seen a lot of similarity between all the racing games in terms of what tracks get added or what tracks were part of the base game. 
And this is distinctly a Gran Turismo circuit, if we're going to be honest. We all have the great memories, if you can call them great, <laughs> of driving yeah. like the MX-5 in the endurance race from Gran Turismo 3, is that? Uh, I think it was in, it was in 4, yeah, because Yakubo was not oh, in 3, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> and um, it's good to see it back in that sense, but like you, we, we also drove this on GT Sport Online a few days ago. And um, after an hour, I think that that's me had my fill. I won't, yeah. I won't mind it appearing in the um, the sport events every so often, but I don't think I'm ever going to turn the game on and go, you know what, I think I want to drive on scuba. Right, it's the perfect track for a car like the M3, though. I think I think that was my you know most positive you know glowing endorsement I could make about it. Um, just a great track for some of the slower cars. You can do a lap in in the M3 in about a minute. Yeah, <laughs> which is. Uh, something you can't say for uh, a lot of the longer tracks in the game. I think the game mostly favors some longer circuits, and I think it's more fun than uh, Kyoto Miyabi, I guess. So, yeah, um, I think it's a, a positive uh, addition overall. And we also got the VR time trial mode, which I don't have PlayStation VR. I know you don't, so we can't really speak to the the quality of this but it really is just the the vr tour mode but now you can do time trials and pretty much race to your heart's content from what i understand anyway i'm really surprised the game didn't launch with this in all honesty i mean it seems like an easy enough feature to have had in there from the start but it's great that those on playstation vr can now make use of it we'll see if um this this actually is worthwhile enough that people with the vr headset will choose to use it because it seems like the PlayStation VR headset hasn't quite had the level of support that many of the early adopters would have wanted. But for racing fans, this is a, a good a good deal. A free update that includes the time trials. And like you were saying, Adam, you get to drive about to your heart's content. Right. And it is not the last word in VR fun for racing fans this week. because And this is, this is such a perfect segue. As someone who is new to podcasting, it makes me feel so good to be able to just move smoothly from that topic into this topic which is wipeout omega collection getting its vr update and i'm really surprised to see the reaction that this has got off the bat it seems like everyone who has played it loves it except for the people who have motion sickness problems which that sucks i'm sorry i have never experienced psvr so i can't speak to that it's a free update uh, which is great it was originally announced in December, which I completely missed. I wasn't aware this was in the works until I saw it last week. And the beautiful thing about it is, you know, just what you were pretty much saying about GT Sport, this is playable across all game modes and tracks. So where Gran Turismo dropped the ball, you don't have to worry about that with Wipeout. And I think it, it has a lot to do with the fact that Wipeout is operating basically as a PS3 remaster. So definitely, you don't have to worry about, like, you know, cutting back the detail, cutting back the frame rate, all of that stuff, the physics, uh, to make use of the VR mode. It was there was a lot of you know performance headroom there for the PS4 anyway. So the VR translation is you know completely one to one. And uh, you also get three new VR ships uh, which have interiors, and I think the interiors pretty much are just like it just looks like a new HUD basically <laughs> with the texture of like a window on top of you, but. Yeah, I mean, it looks like a lot of fun. It's a great update as well, because I remember when this first got announced, the Omega Collection, that that was one of the questions XDev were asked, like, why isn't VR here? 
and at the time they, they said like we think it's the type of game that's a bit too fast for VR, it would make people feel sick. So it's good that um, when they announced it in December it was almost as if they were like, you know what, there are people who do, who do want this, so why should we hold back a really cool feature that a lot of people will love to use. So I'm glad to see it here. It's the perfect, it's perfectly suitable for VR as you said Adam, because it's essentially PS3 games and a Vita game. So this is great. Wipeout deserves all the support it can get. We're probably not going to get a new game. But if any of us do pick up a PSVR headset, I've got a feeling this might be the first thing we'll turn on <laughs> when we if we actually did pick up that hardware. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it just makes me so happy to see Wipeout get so much recognition from people who like wouldn't ordinarily play it, you know? And the fact that this could kind of rise to be like one of the defining PSVR experiences is really cool. I do wish that xdev got you know kind of jumped on the ball on this a little bit earlier you know where sony pushed for it earlier or something because it is weird almost a year after release that game's probably what at this point like nine months old for them to to do this now uh it seems kind of strange and out of left field and i I think it would if they struck while the iron was hot uh or as hot as it could really be for wipeout it it probably would have made more of a of a splash but Nevertheless, I'm happy we still got it. Yeah, I mean, with Omega Collection when it first released, it seemed like Sony were struggling to come up with a a marketing point for the game and ended up framing it as like this PS1 collection for some reason with the, the special edition slipcover they had. Yeah, it was very weird. Yeah, and this, like you were saying, this would be the perfect thing to talk about and if it did come out, even if you didn't have a PSVR headset, you could think, well, this is obviously to show off the PlayStation VR, but the game's reduced in most places now and um, it's fell out of public conversation, so this will give it a slight boost, but it's just a bit of a missed opportunity that if they had that PlayStation VR support on the front cover, it might have helped the game even more, because it did sell well in the UK, but I'm not sure how it did elsewhere. I think the UK really is like the home market for Wipeout, so I would be surprised to find that it, you know, did very well in the u.s or or anywhere else around the world but one last thought on the wipeout thing is that it also kind of makes me happy to see like a racing game kind of being used to like push the conversation technologically speaking you know with vr and whatnot because you know growing up it was like the first one of the first games on every console that was like really demonstrative of the power of that console it was always a racing game it was ridge racer or it was daytona or you know something like that and racing games don't really do that anymore for whatever reason i guess consoles are so powerful that we can demonstrate that power in other ways now but vr is one of those applications that people often think is like kind of like a you know obvious place for vr to to really work well and uh, for people to feel at home with it but because of the motion sickness problems and and because some the, the latency issues and you know some games like GT Sport just look so good that they take a pretty decent hit when you move to VR the translation doesn't always you know as as good as you think it would be in your mind so they seem to have done it well you know correctly with Wipeout yeah exactly i mean that point you were making about a hit on the fidelity or the actual PlayStation 4 games the only experience I have with PlayStation VR is Drive Club VR. Hmm. I mean, I mean, Drive Club's a beautiful game, but when I played it on the VR headset, it just it looked really muddy, and the resolution isn't great. 
and it just wasn't a pleasant experience in terms of me thinking, wow, I'm in virtual reality. It was a pleasant yeah. experience in the sense that you could look behind and see the car, and those things are pretty cool, that like you can see the interior of the car around you. Yeah. I mean, if I'm going to be honest, for at least half the race, I was using prior knowledge of the track I was on to make it to the end, based on how much I'd played on PS4, because it was just so hard to see what was happening in the distance, and it was such a huge cut for a game like Drive Club, and it was a shame. And that was when my interest in VR sort of died, because until they can keep a respectable enough level of fidelity that we get these full experiences, I think VR in general will struggle to find that audience. And this is obviously because Sony took the approach to make VR affordable, which is commendable, because it opens it up to, to a bigger audience. Right, But right. Um, Yeah, I think that um, on the PlayStation VR has been moderately successful, and Sony will be happy with that. But if they had more racing experiences on there, it might have helped push it, much like the old days, like you were saying, with Daytona, Ridge Racer, Gran Turismo 3, those type of games that showed off the consoles. You could have had a really cool wipeout experience showing off PlayStation VR, and who knows how much of a difference that could have made. Yeah, well, we can wonder, but at least we have the game. Exactly, it's it's great. It's there, and like I said, if I ever do pick up PlayStation VR, I can't wait to give it a go because I'm always game for wipeout, as I'm sure you are as well, Adam. Absolutely. I mean, we've talked a lot about <clears throat> Wipeout Omega Collection, and those aren't the Wipeout games I would have necessarily liked to see remastered, but. I get why they were, so it's okay. And yeah, with that, we'll move on to our last topic, uh, relates to MotoGP 18, which I know you uh, recently covered, Brendan, so take it away. Yep, so MotoGP 18, um, it's basically the next iteration in the MotoGP franchise by Milestone, but there's a few reasons why we should care more about this one than in previous entries. So firstly, it's moving to Unreal Engine 4 now, in terms of the game engine. So it's getting up to date, which means we're going to see better graphics, overall better particle effects and environmental effects on the racetrack, according to the game's creative director. So that's pretty cool. Uh, number two, it's going to be releasing on Switch. And this is great Woo! news. Yeah, exactly. More racing games. <laughs> um, it's even better news than the previous crappy milestone ports that have been on <laughs> Switch, because Unreal Engine 4 is natively supported. Mm. So, by that factor, we should see some better quality here. I don't want to make too many assumptions, because it could still turn out not very great. But the fact that they're using a natively supported engine does have me hyped. And the final point I just want to bring up, and it's more of a, a philosophical feature the creative director brought up, um, by stating that he sees this as a reboot for the franchise. And, I mean, I don't know about you, Adam, but my Twitter feed's constantly full of people asking for a reboot of MotoGP. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. This is what the world really needed. Right beside V Rally Four. Yeah, this is V Rally Four. Uh, yeah, I don't. I haven't played the MoGP game in a very long time. I think the last one that I toyed around with was a demo for like eleven. Back when they were naming them like MotoGP Ten Eleven or something like that, it was weird. Then they were they were published by Capcom, and I don't know who was developing those games. But yeah, I. I can't speak to where MotoGP has been recently because I could I haven't played those games, but yeah, I mean I like motorcycle racing games. I I always have. I used to play MotoGP. O two was like the last one I got really into <laughs> on the Xbox, and it was a lot of fun. And I mean MotoGP is a fantastic racing series. Like, it, I I don't know how you can engineer 
a, a series so that every single race comes down to the same two riders in the final corner battling for the lead every single week or two weeks it's amazing well, hopefully that transfers to MotoGP 18 as well because it's still, it's an interesting series to me because I quite like uh, motorcycle racing games usually but I've not really played any of the more recent ones and with the promised drone scanned tracks and laser scanned rider faces <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> this, a big, oh, big deal. definitely it's all about authenticity at the end of the day and for fans of MotoGP in real life those are some pretty big big aspects of the game I would say because if the Codemasters Formula 1 games looked really good in terms of the tracks and also the drivers it just makes you feel more part of that world so absolutely although we have a joke about these the, the this laser scanned rider faces and stuff I mean this is what we want from a, a motorsport series guided game we want to see the actual series represented as much as possible from a, compared to its real life counterpart and they even brought that up when they were talking about the career mode briefly, saying that they've started working on ways to develop your bike over time. And the aspects like that keep people coming back, because let's be honest, when it's these single series racing games, it's very easy to do one single full season and then drop it. So you need to keep you need to find a way to keep players coming back. Yeah, w- when you're talking about, you know, the little things that kind of make it feel more authentic like the the rider faces and whatnot just reminds me like every couple of years codemasters will add this you know element to f1 where like you'll have to answer questions but from the media and stuff like that and then the next year they'll take it out and then they'll put it <laughs> back in there and like i i always get upset when they get rid of it though because i love stuff like that i mean it's totally inconsequential it doesn't matter at all it's just this you know fake you know morale meter that really doesn't affect anything and it's the same thing in like uh like i play mlb the show or you know i have a franchise in that game or any sports game you can think of i love that stuff because it 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 is just window dressing but if you really appreciate the series it makes a difference yeah definitely totally agree yeah so i'm excited to give it a try uh when it comes out on the switch it is weird to think about like you know a serious motorcycle racing game like MotoGP on the Switch, <laughs> but I want I want racing games on the Switch, so I, I will always stand up for that. Yeah, well, I think that's really all we can say about MotoGP right now because it, it was only just announced, and we won't see it until June. It's good to see another racing game on Switch, even if it isn't really suited to the platform. I'm just hoping that the more racing games that appear there, the more other developer like we need to get in on this action. Absolutely. It can only mean good things. With that, we'll continue to our featured topic, but we'll take a little short break first. This week's featured topic is one that 
we're doing the research for this and it ended up being so gargantuan that like we had to cut it up into separate shows so this is only going to be the first part of unreleased racing games unreleased or canceled racing games and here we've got you know i don't know i'm not going to count right now let's say 10 racing games and uh just all over the gamut from the 90s uh up until a couple years ago and a lot of these have interesting stories um racing games don't tend to get the same kind of coverage as as other video game genres i don't have to tell anyone listening to this podcast that so trying to dig up research for this was um it was kind of a, a tough task uh, because there are websites like unseen 64 and the cutting room floor and those are fantastic websites and i I could spend, you know, I have spent hours and hours of my days on them, but the racing games kind of, you know, they get left behind, but that's why they're so cheap to buy, you know, when you want to go retro game shopping. So I guess that's the one benefit because people don't care. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, so we'll just get into the first game on the list and we're going to try and burn through these relatively quickly because there are so many, but this one was totally me just just playing to my own strengths and just wanted to have an opportunity to talk about my favorite racing game ever, maybe my favorite game ever, which is uh, Scud Race or Sega Super GT. And specifically, uh, that game got released, but the Dreamcast port did not. And there's not a ton of information is known about the Dreamcast port of Scud Race, but thanks to things like YouTube and various forums of people talking about over the years we kind of have an idea sort of of what happened so basically before dreamcast launched uh there were a pair of tech demos that surfaced behind closed doors and we never really saw these publicly anyway uh one demo runs through a model of the beginner dolphin tunnel course so that's like the first track in the game where you have the aquarium and everything and the the spinning sega saturn logo on the on the globe and and it's all running on Dreamcast hardware. And it's pre-release Dreamcast hardware. So it's it actually ended up being a little bit less powerful than the production console was. It still looks pretty good. The other shows an F40 and a 911 on just an endless bridge. And all of this looks, you know, it's tech demo fair. There's nothing really super intricate there. It's just showing you they can run these models in real time and everything looks good. The interesting thing about this demo is that we don't know exactly who made it, but there are many fingers pointing to core design, which is very strange because uh, if you played Tomb Raider back in the day, you would know core design. It's not a studio you would really assume would work on this tech demo. And the fact that uh, a Sega internal studio didn't do it is kind of interesting. I have read things saying that uh, Smilebit, who was actually responsible for the Sega Rally 2 Dreamcast port, that's what they ended up doing, may have had a hand in this, but then Sega Rally 2 had so many issues in the port to Dreamcast that they may have been pulled off of the Scud Race project onto that game in the 11th hour to try and fix it so that they could just ship it and get out the door. Uh, Sega was apparently impressed by Core's work on uh, various Genesis titles and Tomb Raider on the Saturn, which was kind of an achievement because the Saturn was pretty terrible hardware (laughs) (laughs) to put it to put it lightly um and it just seems that in between you know at this point we're talking this is before 98 so let's say you know these demos are are developed around nine sometime in 1997 or early 98 um 
the BPR Global GT series, which is what Scud Race was based on, and it was licensed. This was the predecessor to FIA GT. Uh, this series shut its doors about not not very long after Scud Race came out in the arcades, and that was 1996. So you can imagine the licensing, you know, basis for the series is gone. Uh, that probably stands in the way of the game getting a port or you know being being developed any further. And then you also have to look around, and I, I think something that's going to come up a lot as we talk about these games is the effect that Gran Turismo had on the genre. And I don't think a game like this that kind of had the Daytona sort of handling model was more arcade-based, race cars, and very, very fun arcade environments, but these are not realistic tracks in the slightest. That I feel like Sega saw that and realized that wasn't what the market wanted and instead focused on Sega GT, for example. It seems like a good assumption because I think Gran Turismo did start that trend of gamers favouring more realistic racing games and that that was that wasn't Sega's wheelhouse at all, like you were saying, but Scud Race, Daytona, Sega Rally, they might have had elements, you could argue, of realistic racing, but they were more focused on pure fun. And it wouldn't be a surprise then if Gran Turismo did influence the the this port never actually getting released. Yeah, and I think if you want to kind of take stock of what types of racing games Sega was good at and the ones that it wasn't so good at, just play Sega GT. It's not a very good game. It has a lot of problems. Uh, I, I wrote a retrospective on, on GT Plan about it, and I could talk forever about all the ways in which that game is, is a broken, you know, wannabe Gran Turismo and and it's a shame because Sega does make you know obviously made fantastic racing games, and maybe if they put the right studio on it, Sega GT could have been something great. But instead, you know, we missed. I I, I won't say Scud Race died so Sega GT could live. We don't know enough to say that definitively, but there were a lot of Model Three titles that never made it to Dreamcast that a lot of Sega fans are upset about. Uh, the the main two in terms of racing games being Scud Race and Daytona Three, and I think a lot of people were disappointed uh, to to not get that home port because I mean Scud Race when it came out in in '96, um, I actually have this uh, Next Generation magazine, which Next Gen is like the US was the U.S. version of Edge. And they did this whole feature on Scud Race, and you can tell how excited they were about this game, just what the Model 3 hardware meant in terms of, like, how beautiful that game looked, how it felt, how it ran. It was just light years ahead of any other hardware at the time, consoles, PCs, other arcade boards, what have you. It was it was the future. Sega was doing that all throughout the 90s, so the Dreamcast was a pretty good contemporary for Model 3. It, you know, there, there are differing reports on like oh it's less powerful than model 3 oh it's a little bit more powerful no it's nowhere near it you know i've played enough dreamcast games to know that the dreamcast could approximate a model 3 game and you wouldn't really notice any difference so just a, a quick question then about sega gt who who actually developed that sega gt was a uh, wow entertainment right okay so who i forget all because there were so many weird sega second parties during that time that 
they all worked on random projects that didn't seem to have anything to do with each other. <laughs> so I can't, I can't tell you what else they did. I forget off the top of my head, but I mean, they did Sega GT 2002 on the Xbox, which was a much better game. It wasn't a great game, but it, it was much better than the original. Do you think like uh, the Sega GT 2002 might have had input from what would become Turn 10? <laughs> That's why it became oh. pretty decent on Xbox. <laughs> Yeah, no, you know what? I never thought about that. That never once crossed my mind, but I could absolutely see Microsoft coming in. Because and... Microsoft and Sega had a very tight relationship early in the, in yeah, the Xbox's life. Yeah, that's why I brought it up. Yeah, yeah uh, I mean, there were all those uh, rumors, and I don't think it's a rumor at this point. I think Microsoft was trying to work out some deal with Sega where it would have either bought Sega or bought you know, Sega's development capability something like that some some something that was further than just a close partnership and it never materialized but you still did get all of those exclusives on the xbox sega gt uh jsrf uh panzer dragoon orta it's basically the dreamcast too that we never got yeah for the first couple of years anyway and then sammy bought sega and everything everything went to hell yeah we don't talk about that <laughs> yeah it's another story i like that we already <laughs> spent 10 minutes on that game oh my god i could talk forever about it it bodes well but we'll move on yeah it bodes, it bodes really well this is gonna be a great six hour podcast i'm gonna have to uh i'm gonna have to like up my soundcloud subscription just to be able to store it all online uh well i don't think this one's gonna be a quick one either no no this won't <laughs> if scud race is your personal fashion project then mine's is blur <laughs> and um, we did talk about Blur briefly in one of the previous podcasts, but we're going to specifically talk about Blur 2 and what we know about that game and what we knew about Blur as a series that may have uh, ended up showing what Blur 2 would go on to become. So I'll start off with a brief history lesson. I promise I'll keep it brief. So Blur as a series was basically Activision's Call of Duty. Their words, not mine's, for the racing genre. They wanted Blur to become a huge game in that market, and they marketed it as such, even when some development turmoil was happening in the background, whether the game was going to have a story mode, or it wasn't going to have a story mode, and then they settled on social Facebook features or something. That's a good replacement for a story mode. (laughs) Facebook contacts could replace any in-game characters you would ever want exactly and you could share pictures directly to facebook so who needs uh, world building fantastic yeah so basically that's what activision seen blur as a series as they wanted to take the first game use it as a platform to build it further um most of us will know the story about how that actually went blur pretty much bombed didn't finish the sales for any region outside the uk on its first week and uh, even though it's loved by a lot of people, the game didn't sell very well. And despite a promised £20 towards the franchise, if it had sold Bizarre Creations, that was Activision's um, carrot almost. Like, if this, if your game does well, we'll give you an additional £20 million in budget for what would become Blur 2. Um, it didn't materialise, and then that was that. Bizarre Creations was shut down, and the Blur servers were also shut down close after that. So, a few years passed, no news really, about uh, what Blur 2 would have been. And then in 2013, we actually got a video showing what Blur 2 might have actually become. 
And this is interesting because it was actually like an expanded version almost of the Brighton tracks in the first game, which is a track that a lot of people will remember from the game, I imagine. It was the one where basically it was at night time, it was pretty stormy, and it looked really good on the PlayStation 3 hardware. But with Blur 2's uh, pre-alpha build, they had took those stormy effects and basically cranked it up to 11. So it looked really cool, and you can find this video on YouTube if you do want to see it. And um, without going too far and being too enthusiastic, this game must have been pushing the graphical boundaries of that generation based on even the pre-alpha footage, because everything was running really smoothly, the, the weather effects that they've got there are really cool. Like, it isn't weather effects you'd see in like a sim racing game, more like that um, realistic cartoony blend that Blur had as well. And um, they had also some cool stuff with like, the HUD stayed more um, more invasive turn signals, and they also had cool ideas for weapons, one of which uh, me and you talked about, Adam, briefly, that was like Quake from Wipeout, basically just like a surge that would blast through the pack. And judging on the damage, the, the slight damage modelling of the first game, it would have been cool to see how that kind of weapon would have hurt the other cars. And yeah, I mean, the, the vibe I get from Blur 2 is that it, it did seem like a natural progression from the first game. Nothing too crazy, much like you would see in Call of Duty, funnily enough. So Activision might have been right there. <laughs> but um, it just it had a bit more polish, even in that pre-alpha state. And the lighting engine as well was it looked so much more improved over the first game. Not that the first game looked bad, but the first game really focused on those neon colours that were spread throughout the game. But I don't know about you, Adam, because you've seen this video as well. Like I get a vibe that they were actually seeing how real they could make it look, but keep that blur element we all liked from the first game in terms of design. Yeah, no, I was floored when I saw that video because you only recently uh, told me about this. I did not know that uh, Blur 2 footage had ever leaked of that. And uh, do we know the hardware that that video was running on? Nope. Uh, based on comments from the former art director... Chris Davey, it seemed like uh, that that wasn't brought up. So you're right, maybe this could have been running on dev kits for the PS4 and Xbox One, but it wouldn't have been surprising because, like I said, these are some stunning clips because there's a few other ones as well that take place in a, a Dubai circuit because around about that time period, it seemed like every racing game wanted to go for that, um, that environment. And yeah, even in that video compared to the Brighton one, you get the the heat effect that separates the environment so like whereas Brighton looked distinctly like England the Dubai track had a bit more of a, a warm color scheme that kind of made it feel like a desert yeah what stuck out to me was the dynamic nature of the Dubai track and and that one portion of the video where you're driving up the side of the building it reminded me a lot of split second which you know, we keep drawing those comparisons because Split Second and Blur came out right next to each other. And Split Second had some pretty good ideas. And I think I think involving the environment more, involving crazy things like buildings and destructibility and whatnot in the race and in the track design really played to its strengths and was probably that game's greatest asset. And to combine that with Blur's, you know, fantastic handling, art direction, and, and of course those weapons... It seems like it would have been the perfect match. Uh, I'm really bummed that we never got to see that game. Yeah, uh, definitely. I think the comparison to Split Second is pretty interesting because I imagine if those games coming out around about the same time period 
Black, what would have been Black Rock Studios at the time would have been looking at Blur, and Bizarre Creations would have been looking at Black Rock Studios. So it would have been really cool to see if Blur 2 took some of those aspects from Split Second, it would have totally suited the Blur franchise and implemented them in there. And even uh, from the, the showreel we're talking about, videos, seeing like the snowy environments and stuff as well, it seemed like they were ready to take Blur a step further from what first game was and actually take it on a world tour almost. And um, keep that cookie element in place, such as driving inside of buildings, but also make it look more realistic in a lighting engine, which would have gave it a, a fan base, I'm sure, because we're, we're all suckers for graphics in the racing genre at the end of the day, and that would have looked really cool. That was probably my one issue with Blur, and it was a small one, because the gameplay was so addictive that I really didn't care that much, but... You look at what Bizarre was able to do, you know, as a first-party developer with Microsoft, and it, you know, I, I understand that when you're going third-party and everything, you have to develop for different systems. You're never going to get that that same kind of fidelity, but there was a certain polish to those PGR games that I didn't get from Blur that I was expecting simply because of the development studio behind it. Probably, you know, a mistake on my part, to be fair, but uh, probably also because Activision... I'm sure was rushing everything behind the scenes and really just wanted to get the game out the door and really didn't give that much of a crap whether or not it was beautiful or not. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> you're, I would say you're right there because we did delay it from the initial November 2011 release date, I think it was. Um, maybe not 2010, can't think. <laughs> from the initial November release date anyway, the November before it did come out, and uh, imagine at that point Activision were twisting Bizarre's arm like, yep. we need to get this out there we need to get this out there and it wouldn't have even been a surprise if Activision's Call of Duty comments were made on the basis of the fact that it had a prestige system and that was it, like at the time that that was all the rage, I remember all my friends talking about how they had prestige in Call of Duty and that was the big pull for the multiplayer and Blur had a lot of those same components such as like event playlists and ranking up and unlocking item boosters to make uh, your kind of your gameplay experience a bit more unique and that's what i liked about blur because they put so much effort into that multiplayer mode and it did keep you keep you coming back for more and it's just a shame we don't see an advancement on that at all because it seems like what blur tried to do with its online infrastructure hasn't really been attempted again i mean when it comes to online racing games it seems that we get a, a basic lobby system maybe a basic ranking up system or like the type of stuff we see in Gran Turismo Sport. But that um, the community that Blur had created was fantastic because the gameplay totally mashed with the, the achievement-based nature of the multiplayer online. Yeah, I, I don't remember much of the specifics in terms of the multiplayer because I think we, we've talked about this a couple episodes ago, but I think when the game was out, I didn't have sufficient internet capabilities. So, so most of my multiplayer was just, you know, stuck to... Uh to local but i mean local multiplayer in that game was fantastic too so blur 2 hopefully would have expanded on all of that the local multiplayer the online but unfortunately all we've got to look at is these videos so if you're a fan of blur i urge you to check out check them out because they went relatively under the radar when they were just released because like we've talked about the racing genre doesn't exactly get people hyped when it comes to unfinished or unreleased games so it'd be easy to miss them, but yeah, worth bashing into YouTube, Blur 2, and check out the showcase reel specifically that shows up more of the unique features they seem to be working on. Right. 
Yeah, and I think I'm looking at this list again. I, th- I think we're gonna need to cut some out because <laughs> we're already at like 45 <laughs> minutes. So yeah, well you can you can take the next one then, Adam. Sorry for running over. Oh no, it's not your fault. I mean, we both spent a lot of time on those games. Uh, I will prioritize the ones that we uh, definitely can both talk about. So we'll move on to this one. I think will be quick. Uh, we'll move on to Diddy Kong Racing Adventure. Now, this is going to highlight something that we'll probably talk about on this later later again on this podcast or maybe the next time we do this show which is uh that rare being bought by microsoft screwed up a lot of things that were that were seemingly in progress at nintendo and rare at that time it it completely i don't know if like you know, one day people from Rare came into work and all of a sudden there were like Microsoft guys standing in their office or what? It seems like everything was completely just, everyone was caught off guard because like every project just got, you know, left and just upended. But uh, the important thing to note is that this is Diddy Kong Racing Adventure on the GameCube. This is not to be confused with Donkey Kong Racing, which was a Rare developed title that was announced at the Nintendo Space World Conference in 2001 that was canned when Microsoft bought Rare in 2002. So this game actually was not developed by Rare, the Diddy Kong Racing Adventure. Donkey Kong was, this one wasn't. This was uh, attempted by Climax Studios, which actually, to, to bring it full circle, I remember they made MotoGP, I think back in 2002. So that was the one I played. It was definitely a Climax game. So they had some racing experience. Uh, the thing is, though, this game was never announced to the public. And they had some ideas for it that you can actually go on YouTube and see videos of, uh, of all of these things. And some of them expanded upon ideas that were being bandied about for Donkey Kong Racing and other things were kind of just like more off the wall. So um, it would have expanded upon uh, D Kong's Racing Adventure Mode, which I think was like really the, the you know crux of that game, what, what most people remember most and really enjoyed. Uh, different vehicle types of weight classes, so kind of, you know, piggybacking off of what uh, Mario Kart did very well. It would have had rideable animals, which is brings up an interesting philosophical question in the world of, of Donkey <laughs> Kong, I guess. <laughs> um, there would have been special character-specific attacks. Uh, stunt and obstacle, obstacle course modes were in the cards as well. So it would have done this thing where, um, also similar to Sega GT 2002, the Bring It Around, where um, you would be in a certain area and it would have been in like black and white until you like freed it from enemy control. It just reminds me of uh, how in Sega GT 2002 you had those like chronicle races where like you start out in the 70s and everything's like all old and everything and then by the end of the race it's like color and whatever. Um, And... Yeah, so we actually didn't know about this game for a very long time. Uh, the first video of a development build surfaced for it in 2016. And my main takeaway from this is, like, how many times... I mean, twice, obviously, but, like, Nintendo really wanted to develop a sequel, get a sequel to Diddy Kong Racing out, and it just never happened. And it's a shame because, like, there are a lot of people who obviously love that game. I think early on it was kind of like, uh, uh, sort of like the scene as the poor man's Mario Kart, even though it was way more ambitious. Totally. People yeah. people don't really pay attention to that. They just kind of see a game with Diddy Kong in it, and they don't, you know, they kind of look at it as like the lesser Nintendo property. 
but it was very ambitious. And then when they uh, when they came out with the DS re-release of Diddy Kong Racing, I fell in love with that game all over again. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's that was my most um, prevalent experience with Diddy Kong Racing was the the DS port. I didn't have a Nintendo sixty four. No, I know <laughs> blasphemy. <laughs> Not um, really. That system so. sucked. Move on. <laughs> so um, yeah, I played Diddy Kong Racing on the DS, and it still held up perfectly fine, and it was great fun. And just reading about what could have been for this adventure title, it sounds like they would have expanded on the elements people liked, and what separated it from Mario Kart in the first place. Yeah, and I think the really funny thing about this uh, tech demo, which you can see online, is that it was actually running on Xbox, because I guess that's all uh, Climax had to work with which makes me think that like either they were doing this to pitch it to nintendo and it got very far along without them actually making the pitch and maybe nintendo turned it down or like i don't know they kept trying to convince nintendo that this was a pitch worth worth you know enterprising and they just didn't happen but very strange um diddy kong racing deserves more respect uh i don't know it's I'll admit, like, I was one of those kids when I was younger where, like, I didn't really pay that much attention to it. But, like, as I got older and, like, realized, you know, the N64 was a pretty, it was, in terms of performance and every, it was a pretty hamstrung console. It really didn't have a lot going for it. So the fact that they were able to pull all of that off on that system is pretty impressive. Yeah, it's one of these ones as well where Diddy Kong Racing done a lot more than Mario Kart 64. But Mario Kart 64 is thought of more fondly, and even now that's the case. Like the Mario Kart games are so focused on simply offering racing that games like Didcom Racing and even Crash Team Racing on the PlayStation, they were a lot more interesting to me up until a certain point because I like the fact that they were taking that kart racing kind of subgenre and expanding it. And yeah, it's a shame that that doesn't seem to happen much these days, even with the Sonic racing games and stuff we get. They're all very focused on like missions or regular racing but the adventure aspect is something that was really cool about Diddy Kong Racing and especially being able to play it on yeah. the DS and that was handheld was really appealing for me and I put in quite a lot of hours yeah the last thing I'll say about it is it seems to be reflective of this something I noticed like last year to to take off my racing game hat and to put on my general video game fan hat I started to see a lot of people saying like uh Banjo-Kazooie was better than Mario 64, which is something that I don't agree with. I'm sorry, but (laughs) like finally, though, people were like, you know, kind of coming out of the woodwork and saying like, no, you guys have like, you know, shat on this game for too long. And it's actually the more ambitious title and it's better than Mario 64 and everything. So I'm noticing a similar trend with uh, with these uh, kart racers as well. Yeah, it's, it's hip to be outside the loop and have a favourite that isn't the mainstream favourite. <laughs> right. Yeah, so with that, we'll move on to our next title. I'm actually going to skip down the list a little bit here and just prioritise. Uh, we're going to talk about Burnout Paradise. And I know what you're thinking if you're listening to this podcast, but Adam, Burnout Paradise came out. We just got a remastered one last week. It's actually come out twice by this point, so you must be... <laughs> drunk or something uh but i'm not and the reason for that is uh burnout paradise had a lot of dlc that probably wasn't like completely developed probably was just in the planning stages at least half of it but they they had a lot of ideas that didn't come through i mean we definitely know that uh some of this was 
was real and did exist. So Big Surf Island was only supposed to be the first of a series of islands that would have, you know, had a bunch of different uh, gameplay styles and types. Uh, there would have been one uh, that I read that would have um, consisted entirely of circuits, which, to be honest, I don't know if that would have been a great fit for Burnout. I mean, they w I'm sure it would have been absolutely insane circuits, and they probably would have been fun, but I don't know. That, that one seemed kind of weird to me. Would have had, like, a lot of F1 cars and stuff. Yeah. Um, they also... <laughs> they, they, were, they were going to actually have the moon, which... This one was one that apparently did exist um, because they say that they actually uh, they developed the surface of the moon. They modeled it. It was drivable. Um, and, and the whole thing came from I, I don't know who who these quotes come from, unfortunately. I, I found this article uh, from a couple years ago that just like quoted a Criterion blog, but the original person who wrote the blog entry was not a part of the article I was reading, so I, I can't attribute the same one to Criterion, but uh, the quote goes, someone on the team said that players want the moon on the stick when it comes to DLC. We thought that was funny and we thought we'd do it. Like, I just love that that alone <laughs> is enough to get the people of Criteria and, and their crazy imaginations just out and working on something. I think that's fantastic. Yeah. Turn of a phrase and they're making DLC for it. <laughs> that's yeah. pretty crazy. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's hilarious. Uh, there would have been, you know, zero gravity takedowns and, you know, completely change the the way that burnout works uh something else that we know that existed uh were planes um and and the quote reads a lot of burnout fans already know about this as we showed flying around in a live podcast it was really cool to be able to see paradise city from the air it did not happen because of the way the game world was built the city was never meant to be seen from such viewpoints uh yeah i can i can definitely understand why that one didn't happen because I'm sure they must have been like really excited to try something like that. But if you don't design the game, if you don't design the game world with the idea that it needs to be visible from all viewpoints and at all angles and completely, you know, explored from that perspective, it's not going to work. Yeah, it seems a bit over ambitious because, like you're saying, if the game wasn't built to support planes, it's quite a, a large element to patch in. Even if you've got the planes working, which would be the easy part, it's like, like they've said getting the city to be able to be viewed that easily it wouldn't have been easy and also i remember a quote i can't remember who exactly said it but they said like the final code for burnout paradise once everything had been added was basically being held together by bits of sellotape <laughs> it's like the game has been <laughs> like manipulated so much from the original base right it could Absolutely. break any point <laughs> yeah it, well because when you think about everything they did in that year of Paradise, all the DLC it came out with, I mean, they supported that game more heavily than almost, I mean, any game I can remember, even in recent memory. Like, they really were trailblazers in terms of, like, how to do DLC right. And I have to imagine that if all of that stuff wasn't in the cards in the beginning, it must have been hell to make it all work together and play nice. Uh, it, it doesn't, I guess, you know, some of the issues I have with some of the DLCs, like, uh, motorcycles, for example, not really being able to do the same events as cars and like compete against the cars. Like, you know, it's easy to see why they ran into issues where like certain aspects of the game had to kind of be like uh, sequestered from other aspects. Exactly. It, the bikes are one of these, one of those additional pieces of content that would have been great if they're integrated with everything else. But because they were sort of standalone, I'm not sure how many people who actually got 
into the bike sale element of Burnout Paradise. It's a bit of a shame, but um, it was a big addition anyway, like alongside all the other stuff in Year of Paradise. So planes would have been great. I can see why they aren't there. Um, who knows? Maybe for Burnout Paradise too, we'll see it. Yeah, the last thing that I want to mention, and this was actually my most, the, the one that I read that got me most excited was uh, Time Travel. <laughs> so it goes, not many know about this, but it was discussed on a certain day, a time portal would have opened up on the island. When you jump through, you would have found yourself on Big Surf at another point in history. Maybe the Wild West. You could have done some challenges and jump back. I mean, it's really just another island, but it's like, you know, an old-timey island. I think that's awesome. I think that's really cool. I think it shows just how much of a, a bunch of fans the Criterion guys must be of Back to the Future because we got that card as part of the Legends DLC. Yep. And this just sounds like they were watching it in the office one day. They were like, that could be cool. On the right, it would have been really cool to, to go back in time. But it just is so far out there that I'm wondering <laughs> like when they were looking at Burnout Paradise, what it was at the time. The fact that they felt they could integrate time travel into that is pretty impressive. They just have, like, clearly they had the most hyperactive minds of, like, any developers in the world. And just the ambition to try and recreate all of these things that they loved, uh, you know, from their childhood or over the years or whatever in this game, for it to be just this, like, you know, repository of just, like, so many different references to different movies and media and everything in a racing game that was also really good, like... No one has ever tried anything like that before, and this seems to be one of those cases where, like, all these ideas, obviously, like, they, they were never going to get through all of these things. They were going to maybe do two of these at the most, you know, if if they could. They already did so much in that year of Paradise Alone. So, yeah. you know, many of these, I'm sure, were in the conceptual stages and then just playing around with ideas, probably for the next burnout if they were going to make one. But it's really cool to hear about. The, the one thing that I'll add... Uh, kind of as a as an aside is that uh, for Burnout Paradise they did two streams uh, Criterion and the one that one of them was like they're playing online with people which was like I mean that was that was fine and they you know it's cool to see those guys uh, do that and they have some interesting things to say but the one that's just like the studio uh, stream the studio playing the game and the interviews with the developers and whatnot and the programmers and the art directors incredibly fascinating i i didn't know that much about burnout paradise and you learn a lot about the game and they just completely spill all the details and it's very insightful it's like an hour long so i recommend everybody go watch that if if you enjoy burnout yeah it's, it's a good recommendation i'll need to get watching that myself actually i've got it in my watch list on youtube but i've not quite got there yet <laughs> And just to briefly bring it back to when we're talking about the level of support that Burnout Paradise has had, I always remember when I was playing through the game for the first time how amazed I was when they changed the title screen of the game. It's such a small change, but at the time, in that generation, it was like, wow, Like I'd never seen anything like that before. And I wish I had the PlayStation 3 hooked up now so I could go back and check what they changed. But I'm pretty sure even the logo was slightly different. Which just goes to show that they, they did ship Burnout Paradise and then they were really looking forward to just improving on as many aspects of it as possible. It, it really was like they're in a bottle, I think, and that's why it's great that it's got another a remaster that people can play on their PlayStation 4 and Xbox One. Yeah, it's the attitude that enough 
uh, developers and, and publishers don't go into when they decide they want to support the game for X amount of years or a certain amount of time. It's usually just like, we'll do it, and then like the planning just falls through. Or they kind of start to notice diminishing returns and they stop trying. But I, I think Criterion proved themselves that like if you continually develop an experience over time and you really put your heart into it and you come up with new ideas and whatnot, you're going to be rewarded. The fans are going to enjoy it. And the game, I mean, the game only, it just got bigger and bigger from the time it released. And it's not, it wasn't one of those like drive club type situations where a game came out and it was broken. The game came out, was perfectly fine and great. And then like all the DLC just made it, you know, loads better over time. Yeah, exactly. It seemed like Criterion, if they were allowed their own way, would have just kept adding and adding to it because they did have that imagination where they, they didn't feel constrained at all because... They obviously felt Paradise City and then by extension Big Surf Island allowed them to do exactly what they wanted with the game, even time trial. So, I mean, time travel. It's really cool. I really think that um, if they'd somehow managed to implement planes and stuff, the game would have been even more ridiculous. But Burnout Paradise as it is is already pretty much fantastic. Right. Yeah, so with that, I want to move on to uh, the last two games we're going to talk about, which are tied in a, in a very strange way. Um, so the first game I want to talk about is an N64 racer called Rev Limit. And this is actually one of the more infamous unreleased racing games on this list because it was in development for so long. And it's actually like because Nintendo fans are so rabid and just crazy about everything... Um, they have done uh, a lot of research on this game, and, and I think the prototype for it sold a couple of years ago, uh, well, fairly recently, and, you know, was kind of this big story all over the place, like, oh, this unreleased Nintendo racing game finally surfaced. Um, it wasn't developed by Nintendo, it was actually developed by a company called Sega Corporation, which I think did a lot of, like, NES, Super Famicom, mostly Japanese Nintendo, and, and probably some, like, 16-bit Sega titles as well. Um, and it was in development for a very long time. So, I mean, this game goes back to the N64's birth, and then Nintendo was working on the 64 disk drive, so they expanded the game to take advantage of that hardware, and then the 64 disk drive kind of came out in Japan and had, like, three games and fizzled out completely, so then they downgraded it back to the N64, and then just, like, around 1999, it just disappears, um... It just, it just completely vanishes. Uh, and the prototype that I was talking about was discovered in 2016. Um, and it is also dated 1999. So, yeah, I mean, figure a good four or five years of this game just being worked on and then just, I guess, not being good enough or something. It, it's very strange. I mean, especially when you go back and look at some of these like more obscure Japanese developers, it's really hard to figure out what's going on because the communication obviously isn't like... You know, we don't have developer diaries and stuff in languages we can read and, you know. From watching the video, uh, it definitely looks... It, it's dated 1999, as I said, and it definitely looks very unfinished. Like, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it's because they, had, like, pumped it up for a 64 disk drive and then they had to knock it back down again. But, like, they basically have, like, a track model and... They have some very rudimentary car models that are running, like, really, like, low poly. Um, but you can't even view, like, the player's own car isn't viewable. And it's very slow and floaty with the choppy frame rate and pop-up all over the place. It doesn't look good. 
but it looks like what they were going for was kind of like um if you ever played gt gt64 uh for anyone who knows that game on the n64 it looks kind of like that or like uh multi-racing championship both of those i think are pretty good games uh but yeah it's it was kind of supposed to be the closest thing the N64 had to Gran Turismo, uh, at least by a Japanese developer anyway, and then it just kind of disappeared. So, very odd. Yeah, what I find interesting about that video is it shows weather effects mm. for a lot of the tracks. Um, when you're cycling through the menus, you can see light rain, heavy rain, clouds, that type of thing. So, it seemed ambitious at least. I mean, we did get a Gran Turismo of sorts on the N64. Uh, it was called World Driver Championship, and it was pretty good. Um, you know, all things considered. I mean, it made use of the N64's expansion pack. It came out later on. Uh, it was developed by by Boss Studios, who also did Top Gear Rally, so like a studio that really uh, knew a thing or two about making racing games on the N64. This honestly seems to me like the kind of, of thing where it's just like, I don't really... I, I don't know what people really feel like they missed here i mean it, it doesn't look like it's in great shape and um there were other racing games on the n64 that seemed to do exactly what this one did but better <laughs> so um, i mean it had it had unlicensed car models that were you know just like in top gear rally they were copies of actual cars so i mean they it's not like they had tons of of money and, and everything behind this. I mean, maybe because it was a uh, disc drive title for a little while, Nintendo was trying to really, like, promote it and, and maybe, you know, funded the game that way. But, yeah, I, I don't think we really lost anything here. But I think what's more interesting is the way it kind of feeds into the next game on this list, which is barely a game, I guess. Th this is me reaching a little bit, but it, I think <laughs> it's reaching for a, a good reason because this could have been a very big deal uh back when the gamecube launched so at space world 2000 the world got to see many of its of its first um examples of uh of gamecube games you got mario 128 and uh there was the first zelda uh, tech demo that looked nothing like wind waker would end up looking like and uh you know space world was nintendo's opportunity to really show off all of its hardware it's kind of like its own Nintendo Directs before they were Nintendo Directs, but, like, you know, they had much more going on because it was an actual conference. And there they showed this tech demo that uh, doesn't really have a name, and I don't know if the internet has named it this or if this was actually what it was called, but we know it is Cars. It's just Cars. Uh, the tech demo just consisted of three car models. You had a, a Viper, a Ferrari F50, and just this generic F1 car. It looked like it was from the mid-'90s. Uh, reportedly 12,000 polygons per model, uh, and the demo is moving at 60 frames per second. <clears throat> There's two parts of this demo from what I've seen. One is just uh, kind of like in a almost like a Super Mario 128 fashion. It's like they have three cars on screen, and they have six cars, and they have 12 cars, and they're just showing you how many cars they can put on screen. Uh, the other part is an, actually a Viper moving, but for whatever reason, I can't find that clip on YouTube. I can only find the clip of the three other cars, so we don't actually get to see any you know, motion. But what's interesting about this is that uh, it was, it, people are trying to figure out where this demo really came from. And, and the most information we have on this goes back to like 2001. So people really haven't followed this lead very much, but uh, it was initially reported to have been created by a Nintendo of America team called Nintendo Technology Development. 
they, from what I have been able to tell, are more like R&D. Like, they're not really a development studio. They're not uh, NST, which did, like, you know, Tenny the Avalanche in those games, or Ridge Racer 64. So maybe it was more of just a, a, a meant to be more of a tech demo. But then I've also seen things saying that it was actually developed by EAD. And if it was made by EAD, first we have to kind of get past the idea of, like, Shigeru Miyamoto Studio making a racing game, which I find really hard to be <laughs> to believe. I, I don't think that would have happened. I, I've also seen things that Rare was maybe linked to this. So, like, it's, you know, there's a lot of different ways this could have played out. There were apparently rumors at this time that Rare was working on a GT killer, so to speak, before Microsoft bought them, which, again, Ooh, feeds wow. into the rumors of Rare doing everything under the sun if Microsoft didn't buy them. Ultimately, what I can take away from this is is two things. One, uh, somebody pointed out that uh, a very astute observation, which is that nearly every demo at Space World 2000 came true, except for this one. They all became real games. Uh, so, why would they go to the trouble of licensing these cars? I mean... I guess maybe they didn't have to license them technically, but why would they go to the trouble of modeling these cars if they weren't going to use it for something like that? Uh, and second, again, it goes back to the Gran Turismo thing. I mean, what was bigger in racing games at that time, you know, the late 90s, early 2000s? It was GT. And I can easily see Nintendo thinking, you know, we're, we're going to launch a GameCube. Nintendo's always been at this constant struggle to be perceived as like more mature and especially at this time when like Sony was absolutely eating everyone's lunch in terms of like you know realizing that gamers were growing up and they wanted games that were maybe more violent or more serious or more simulation or whatever Nintendo probably was like we want to get in on that and try to figure out a way they could maybe do it with with a, a genre that was booming at the time sim racing so it really, it's just one of those what-if scenarios. Like, I, I'm amazed this didn't happen, almost as much as I'm amazed that I've seen this footage. It, it seems like an obvious idea for Nintendo to try and get on that hype train as far as realistic racers were concerned, and especially with the power behind the GameCube, it would have made perfect sense to get a racing game on the system. So, when you've seen this tech demo, it's hard to believe that out of all the games they, they did show, this was the one that nothing really came out. That nothing really came out of this, despite it being probably one of the most obvious games that Nintendo would want to get out the door. And you look at uh, a couple of years later, you look at the Wii's launch and notice that one of the first games that came out for it, at least in the U.S., uh, was this game called GT Pro Series. Yeah, I remember that. Which yeah. also has a very interesting history because that was originally a GameCube game called GT Cube. That was basically imagine Auto Lisa, but worse in every single conceivable way, <laughs> and that that was GTQ. <laughs> uh, it was developed by um, I can't remember the actual name of the studio, but they were called like MTO or something like that. They made all the GT Advance games on the Game Boy Advance. So, I mean, that's an example of like racing games doing really well on Nintendo console. I think those GT Advance games were huge. They had like four sequels, uh, and it's so weird to me that like the Nintendo hardware least suited for a racing game was the one that got the most racing games. <laughs> yeah, so I, I think they really missed an opportunity here. I mean, surely, you know, again, I don't think I don't think uh, Shiggy was going to be 
wanting to make any any racing games with licensed cars in them but like some studio nintendo could have done it and it probably would have been great i mean nintendo used to make uh ken griffey baseball and the kobe bryant basketball games they used to make like sports games this this wasn't back then it was less of probably less of a weird thing than it might seem like today yeah it would just be lost to the confounds of time and we'll never know well until we get a, an official switch racing game from nintendo can you imagine that <laughs> right well i think that time has passed unfortunately yeah there, there are so many games that i wanted to touch on that we we didn't even really have time to talk about and i'll just tease them right now we're going to talk about lamborghini uh famed xbox racing game and this fast and the furious game that was developed by Ken- genki that uh I never even knew existed. It seems like a match made in heaven, but apparently it. Oh, it does. It really does. That that's just made me so angry remembering that that, that existed at some point. Amazing. <laughs> I mean, it seems like a perfect fit, and it just you know fizzled out from what I could tell. But that's us teasing you know the next round of uh, unreleased racing games because we gotta gotta ensure that the audience comes back for something. Exactly. We could sit here and talk for the next four or so hours, but. We'll cut it now and save some of the goodies for next time around. Yeah, I mean, I, I really enjoyed that discussion. I love talking about games like that, especially what could have been. Because it's all, almost always, you know, you make it out better than what actually was true. Like, you know, anytime I see footage of uh, that Sonic Extreme game on the Saturn, oh, their yeah, fans yeah. are always like, oh, this would have been better than Super Mario 64. <laughs> and it's like, no, it wouldn't have. Shut up. Like, it it's not. It wasn't even finished. Like, but it's all about what you see in your mind. Exactly, that's what I was going to say. It's what, what blanks your imagination can fill out in terms of what we actually seen and what a finished product could have looked like. And that's why we, we like looking at these unfinished games for that reason. Because we always imagine the perfect scenario at the end of the day. We never look at an unfinished game and think, oh, it would have been this setback, or it would have been missing this. Every unfinished game I've played is perfect. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> So that is our show. I am Adam Ismail, and uh, you can find me on Twitter at Pioneer Spine. And uh, written some things for GT Planet. I got nothing really to plug <laughs> right now, so I'll throw it over to you. <laughs> um, I'm Brendan Norrison, and you can find me on Twitter at Brendwings. Um, nothing in terms of original content to plug right now. You can find my writing at GT Planet if you really want to see how to write 250 words about Project Cars 2's weekly community events. <laughs> but um, yeah, nothing nothing major to plug at the moment, but uh, hopefully be able to do some more original writing in the future that can then be plugged here. Watch this space, as they say. Exactly, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> Alright, well, thanks everyone, and we'll see you soon. Thanks guys, bye.